Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and once again, the pastor is uh, away this week, and so he's asked me to continue uh, with the series that he began several weeks ago, looking at Jesus in the four Gospels. And if we can put up my slide here, all right, there we go. The four Gospels answer several important questions. Who is Jesus? Why should I commit my life to him? Who he is? Why should I commit my life to him? It's interesting that um, in our political arena over the last maybe year, two, three, who knows how many, uh, it seems like uh, a lot of people have gotten on certain bandwagons. Some have gotten on the bandwagon of Donald Trump. Uh, and they've committed themselves to Donald Trump. Some people uh, were, were on the bandwagon for Hillary Clinton, uh, and they committed themselves to her. Others had been committed to Barack Obama. Others prior to that were committed to George Bush or someone else. And, uh, you know, we kind of go gung-ho because we thought to ourselves, I know who this person is, I know what they're about, and I'm committed to that person. Well, the four Gospels try to answer these simple questions. Who is Jesus Christ? And why should I commit my life to him? The pastor has looked so far at three of those Gospels, and we're going to be looking at the fourth today. Matthew's Gospel sees Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the King, the one that would release them from the bondage of Rome. And Matthew presents Jesus as a very... One... There we go. One that would not simply release them from the powers of Rome, but would release them from the power of the kingdoms of this world and Satan himself. Mark saw Jesus as a suffering servant and emphasized the fact that Jesus was one that was willing to suffer even to the point of death. Luke looks at Jesus as the savior of the world. This morning, we come to the gospel of John. John looks at Jesus in a very, very different way. John presents to us the fact that Jesus is the very son of God. Let's take a look at John's purpose statement. He says this, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life 
in his name. I want you to notice that in John's statement as to why he wrote his gospel, he makes it very clear that he wants to do two things. Number one, he wants to inform us of who Jesus is. And he says, Jesus is the son of God. And then he wants to inform us as to why we should commit our lives to him. Because those that believe may have life, eternal life. And this basic theme that Jesus is the son of God and that he is the one that can provide for us eternal life if we commit ourselves to him is something that we see throughout the whole of the Gospel of John. Well, I'd like to begin right at the very beginning. In fact, we're not going to get very far in John. We're going to look at John chapter 1 and only two verses in John chapter 1. John begins his gospel very differently than do the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin their story about the life of Christ by tying his life to historical events. They they focus on history. Matthew's gospel begins Jesus' birth with the coming of the Magi who come to Jerusalem asking the question, where is he that is king of the Jews? For Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Luke begins his gospel with the annunciation of the angels at the birth of Jesus who say, unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke ties the birth of Jesus to the message of salvation for the world that he wants to present. Mark doesn't have birth narrative, but he ties it to the history of Jesus' ministry with the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism and temptation. But when we come to the Gospel of John, John does not tie the narrative of Jesus to historic things. He rather ties it to eternity. He says, in the beginning, whatever beginning there ever was, in eternity past, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And going down to verse 14, he says, and we, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father. Clearly, John wants to present to us in John chapter 1 that Jesus is no normal individual. That Jesus is the unique son of God. Or 
we might say what John is presenting is that Jesus is God the Son. Let's take a look at several passages in the New Testament where God attests to this very fact in his scripture. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, these are not statements that just others make about Jesus. Indeed, Jesus himself very clearly claimed to be God. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, can you imagine me saying to you, If you have seen me, you have seen God. I've got a funny feeling you might run me out of town. Because I think you would say he is suggesting that he is God. And that's exactly what Jesus claimed. Jesus said, before Abraham ever was, I Now, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus said those words. And you might say, well, Jesus wasn't very good at English grammar. For he should have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And every single Jew that heard him knew exactly what he was claiming. For you see, the very name of God, Jehovah, is simply in Hebrew, I am. When Moses on Mount Sinai asked God, Well, what's your name? You want me to go to the people of Israel? Who should I tell them has sent me? And God said, just say, the I am has sent you. When Jesus said before Abraham was I am, he is not only claiming that he lived before Abraham, he is claiming that he is the eternal God, Jehovah himself. The scriptures claim. Those that knew Jesus claim. Jesus himself claims that he is God. A few generations ago, I'm a Christian writer and theologian philosopher by the name of C.S. Lewis. In writing about Jesus and writing about what people say about Jesus... So, you know, some people say he's a good man. Some people say that he's a wonderful teacher. Some people say he was a great philosopher. Some people would say, you know what? He's the founder of a brand new wonderful religion. 
And C.S. Lewis says, if that's all you think Jesus is, you cannot be correct. For in Jesus and his claims, we must understand that he is either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he is Lord of all. One of the early disciples, even after Jesus' resurrection, who had not yet seen Jesus, Thomas doubted who Jesus was. And he said, look, unless I see him, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, unless I can put my finger in the the wound in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared to Thomas. And Thomas fell to his knees and proclaimed, my Lord and my God. For you see, when Thomas finally concluded that Jesus was not just a good man, he was not just a wonderful teacher, he was not just somebody that he ought to follow, when he concluded that Jesus was God, he at the same time concluded that this Jesus had every claim on his life. You are not just God. You are my Lord. As we look at Jesus as the Son of God, then we understand why it is that we should commit our lives to him. Because he is no ordinary, wonderful kind of guy. He is the Lord Almighty. Well, let's go back, take a look again at John chapter 1. If we could have the next slide. John begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but that is really a strange way to begin a book. Would you agree? What in the world is John trying to say? What is this word? Well, if you talk to theologians, they'll tell you that here the the word is the divine logos. You ever heard the word logos? Word. It's Greek for word. The divine logos. Lagos. If you were to read the great Greek philosophers, they use this word to talk about the essence, the ideal of reason and thought. I don't know about you, but philosophers and me don't necessarily meet. You know, I have a hard time with philosophers. If you can understand what a philosopher is saying... He's not a very good philosopher. That's a bottom line. I'll prove that to you. A great Christian philosopher of the past, Soren Kierkegaard, tried to define truth. All right, now you've kind of probably got an idea what truth is. Is that correct? Let me tell you what Soren Kierkegaard said truth is. He said truth 
is an objective uncertainty held fast through a series of appropriations of the most passionate inwardness. And you say, Soren Kierkegaard is a really, really good philosopher. I don't understand a word that he just said. So I don't think I'm going to try to use theologians, and I'm not going to try to use philosophers to explain what John means when he says, in the beginning was the word. No, no, no. I want to use a rapper. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Okay, I'm not a very good rapper, but okay, a rapper. Uh, several years ago at Lancaster Bible College, we had a student uh, who happened to be a Christian rapper. Uh, and uh, his name was William Branch, otherwise known as Deuce. Deuce loved to talk about the Bible and talk about theology. One day, Deuce was in my office, and we had had quite a heavy conversation about Scripture and about God and about theology. Uh, and he got up to leave, and he said, Word. <laughs> and, and he left. And I... I'm asking myself, what in the world was that word? Um, so, and, see, I'm not a rapper, so I, I don't understand these things. Uh, so, I saw him sometime later, uh, and I asked Deuce, Deuce, when you left my office, you went, word. What did you mean by that? He said, oh, what I meant was, that everything that we were saying was the absolute truth. It was great. It was wonderful. I agree 100%. Wow, was that a word? <laughs> well, you know, I think, though John was not a rapper, I think that John is getting that idea across when he talks about Jesus. In the beginning was the word You see, Jesus is not only the Son of God, God the Son, but Jesus is the Word of God. He represents the ideal message that God is presenting to us today. Here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say. We'll pull that one up. I didn't put verse 1 up here, but verse 1 says that in the past, God spoke through his prophets in many different ways and at many different times. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the embodiment of God's final message to us. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Now, in the rest of chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus to angels and shows Jesus to be far superior to all of the angels because he is not just some kind of heavenly created being. He is the Lord of lords. He is the very creator of all things. And then he comes to chapter 2 and says this. 
Therefore, we must pay attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Jesus is God's final message. Many years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a finance firm uh, called uh, the firm of E.F. Hutton. I don't know if any of you ever remember E.F. Hutton, but E.F. Hutton made a lot of commercials on TV, and they had this little jingle when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. In other words, you better take his advice. Well, I say to you that when Jesus speaks, we better listen. Jesus provides for us God's final message, a message of salvation, a message that can Change your life forever. And yet, so often, Jesus is not thought of as the great messenger of God who can provide for me a remedy to all of the problems in my life. Jesus is a curse word. Jesus is that person that those people over there in church maybe go and think about. There is no greater message, never has been, never will be, than the message that Jesus Christ gives to us. And if we neglect that message, we will not escape a future that will be filled with terror and horror. Well, going back to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the very Son of God. But it says at verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. Now, most of us would like to improve our situation. You'd live in a little shack. Wouldn't you just love to live in a big mansion? Right? You only make 40,000 a year. Wouldn't you like to make 400,000? Oh, yeah. We love the idea, and it makes sense to us to improve your lifestyle, improve your standard of living. How many of us think it's a grand idea? To actually be turned into a frog. You know? 
well, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to become a frog. I don't think so. Why in the world would God in heaven want to come down here and live on this earth? And yet, that is exactly what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. He became flesh and blood. We celebrate Christmas when God becomes born in a lowly manger. But have you ever asked, why would he do that? Well, the Bible tells us. Once again, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 2. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I I don't know about you. But there have definitely been times in my life when I've been afraid of death. I can remember when uh, it was discovered that I had some heart blockage and I had to have an operation and I'm laying in this cold room flat out with nothing, you know, but a, a, a little sheet over top of you, shivering to death and wondering whether or not I was going to see the light of the next day. We kind of have the fear of death. You know why we have the fear of death? We have the fear of death because of the devil. You see, the devil came to humanity, the story of Adam and Eve, and he fed them a lie. And Adam and Eve listened to the lie of the devil and they ended up in death. God had said to them, in the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And Satan said to them, you shall not die. And they listened to the wrong guy. And they introduced death and mortality into this world. Now, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they did not immediately fall dead. Physical death would come. But they did die Spiritually. And rather than understanding the pleasures of being in the presence of God and receiving the blessings of God, they began living what we are living today. And it's called hell on earth. There are a lot of people that draw the conclusion 
that physical life isn't nearly worth living. I'd rather be physically dead. And in this world, no matter how good you might try to be, no matter how hard you might try to succeed, we are slaves to death because of sin. Well, how does that relate to why Jesus came and became a man? How in the world did him becoming a man do anything to solve the problem of sin and death? Look what the writer of Romans says. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you do this sin, you shall surely die. The penalty for sin is death. Who died? Jesus died. He died as the Son of God in human flesh to take the penalty for the sin that you committed. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sins and he paid for them on the cross. But you know, what's really interesting is God can't die. You all understand that. God can't die. Though there may have been some people who declare God dead, God can't die. God, therefore, had to make a means whereby he could die, but he couldn't do it as God. He had to do it as a man. Jesus shared in our humanity for one reason, so that he could go to the cross and die for our sins, and so release us. That's why we should be committing our lives to him. Jesus is the son of God who died to give eternal life. Will you if you have not, commit your life to him. The scriptures say this, if we get the next slide up. Those that believe in him will have eternal life. But exactly what does it mean to believe 
in him. In John chapter 1, it says he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him, but to as many as received him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God does not ask of you to do something so that he might take away your sins and give you eternal life. He asks that you believe something. But believing is not mere intellectual agreement with facts. Let me tell you a story from my youth. Actually, do you call it a youth? I probably wasn't even a youth yet. Uh, I, uh, I was on a, uh, a Cub Scout jamboree. And as part of that gathering, we learned about tying knots and ropes and, you know, those kinds of things that Cub Scouts do. And one of the projects that we did was we created a rope bridge across this little stream, figuring out how to do all those knots and everything. We worked on that all week, and at the end of the week, it was all finished. And the leader said to us, all right, guys, do you believe that it'll hold you? And every hand went up, and every mouth said, absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what his next statement was? Then walk across. You see, belief is not just mere intellectual. Belief is committing your life to Jesus Christ. He is the bridge. And God says to us, walk across. I did that nearly 50 years ago. And I never looked back. And Jesus has never failed me. If you haven't done that, we're going to ask you today to accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God the Son, who has given to you the message of eternal life, God's final message. And who is worthy of our faith because he was willing to come down here to this world to take on human flesh and to die for your sins. And he says, if you will commit yourself to me, I will give to you life. Not just life in the future, in eternity, but Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He will give you abundant life right now. He will deliver you from eternal death and he will deliver you from the spiritual death and the deadliness that is all around you. He is a savior. 
that is worthy of your commitment. Will you commit your life to him today? Let's bow together in prayer. Before I pray, maybe the Lord has been speaking to you this morning. And you say, yeah, maybe I've known about Jesus, but I never knew him. I've never committed my life to him. I want to give you the opportunity of doing that right now. We have individuals around the auditorium that can talk to you and pray with you. And if you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you right now, while everybody is bowing with their eyes closed, if you would just stand in your place, I want to pray with you. And I want to ask somebody to come and help you with this decision. Is there anyone this morning? Just stand where you are. Say, yes, I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Is there anyone? Down front, someone, if somebody could come. In the back. Anyone else? Father God, I thank you for these two. And I pray for them. I pray, Father, that this commitment would not be something that would be lost just in the moment. But, Father, you will reveal yourself to them, confirm their faith, and lead them forward. We thank you that we have a Savior who is Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Thank you.